of Cantos 18 to 27. We start with Virgil's second discourse on love, which falls roughly from, um, in Canto 17, from line 16 to 75. There is a human touch at the beginning of Canto 19. Dante is concerned whether all his questioning worries his master. Interpreted, this episode tells us that we can never weary the good of our intellect with true questions and genuine perplexities, for that is its role. It needs to be teased into action. The thirst for true knowledge grounded in love and beauty is the food of the soul. Coming back to Canto 17, lines 10 to 12 teach that our ordinary in level of consciousness is dim until the light of the true channel of intellect enlightens it. The first step is to learn how to ask the right questions and then to fix all the powers of our understanding on the light of the intellect. Dante's question is how is it possible for love to be the root of all virtuous actions and their contrary. teaching goes like this. The soul was created for love and without true love it becomes sick. The source of love is God. To God the soul must be directed. From the beginning the soul was given to us by a loving God. It is ready and responsive to whatever offers it pleasure. It naturally desires happiness and is attracted to anything that appears to promise joyful fulfilment. Our perception draws images from the things around us. These we display imaginatively in our minds until something in particular attracts us. The mind then becomes captive and desire rises in us is aroused in us. We do not rest until the thing loved makes us rejoice. Clearly, in such a situation, ethical judgment must be involved, for not every image entertained by the mind is good. Great care must be given to understanding the nature of the form that arouses the images within the mind. The form will specif specifically determine what kind of love it is. Dante gives the example of the imprint of a seal on wax. Not every imprint is good, although the wax, symbolising the soul, is good. Care must be exercised as the image we would have stamped on our consciousness and consequently our soul. The 
quality and the force or energy which will involve our will with which it is received will imply good or bad. Dante is implying that we should exercise a certain detachment from all the forms that bombard the mind with images. Figuratively, images may draw us upwards or draw us downwards. We might add that, in general, they are used by society to lower us rather than lift us up. And Virgil's answer has consequently led us to the very root of idolatry. In this context, St. Hesychios wrote in the 6th or 7th century the following. Because every thought enters the heart in the form of a mental image of some sensible object, the blessed light of the divinity will illumine the heart only when the heart is completely <coughs> empty of everything and so free from all form. Indeed, this light reveals itself to the pure intellect in the measure to which the intellect is purged of all concepts. Dante has a further question. If our actions are not determined by the movements of mater the material course of the heavens, but determined by our attractions and responses to the image that take up residence in the mind, are we not then helpless victims of our temperamental urges? Where then is the space for free will? Virgil explains that he can only answer this question with rational arguments, <clears throat> for it would be Beatrice who will later, uh, later answer this question properly, because the fullness of the answer can only come with a faith grounded in the mystery of the Incarnation. This discourse on free will comes roughly halfway through the Purgatorio, and hence the question and the reality of our free will lies at the heart of the whole Commedia. There is a hierarchy of forms, explains Virgil, from pure forms of the spiritual worlds to inanimate substances. Between these two extremes there is an ascending scale of animate substances from the lowest forms of plant life up to ourselves. It is the soul that gives form to matter and makes the being that it is. A flower, a bird, a fish, a squirrel have their life energy because of the anima sensitiva. This, according to scholastic thought, is its substantial form. And I must, you must note here that in the technical language of the schools, that substance or substantial are never used in the modern sense of matter, solid, thick or firm, but rather imply the essence of what is. A phrase such as, give me the substance, substance of that document is the closest to what is implied. Also in the Nicene Creed, 
being of one substance with the Father. And here, clearly the word substance may be substituted by the word essence. Now going back to our creatures, when life ceases in a creature at death, this, the substantial form, is withdrawn and we are left with a decaying material shape. The particular individuality of the dog or cat we love ceases and what was the vehicle of affection has to be disposed before putrefaction takes place. Dante's explicit lines 49 and 50, the soul is a compound with matter, yet distinct from it. The soul is not imprisoned in the body, it impregnates, if that is the word, a whole being. Dante's understanding of the nature of the soul is therefore biblical rather than platonic and dualistic. Perhaps it is better to say that here we have an example of how classical philosophical thought was developed through the through basic Hebraic concepts into a Christian understanding. In the hands of the Holy Spirit, nothing that is good is wasted. There is a divine economy. And our Lord's role, as he said, was to fulfill and not to destroy. Virgil also teaches that each species has a specific virtue. Man, for example, has the discursive intellect, his reasoning faculties. As Dorothy Sayers so aptly puts it, animals know by instinct, appetite or acquired, acquired habit, angels by intuition, only man argues. Our intellective soul has two faculties, our intellect and our will. The intellect tells us that we are. The will informs us that we are aware of preference, that we firstly desire the good. And theologically, God is the source of all true being and will. From this mystery, all the order, natural order comes. For us as humans, the goal and final principle of the intellect is within us, our soul. But the will, which is stimulated and charged into action by the forms without and the images aroused within the mind, has its end outside the mind. We know the specific virtue, specifica virtude, line 51, and virtual virtu, line 62, through the action of the will. So quality, or lack of it, that we recognize. Innate within us is the faculty of ascent, line 62 to 63 again. On the coolness of anger, we met Marco Lombardo, who initiated the discourse on free will. In Canto 16, line 75, he told Dante 
that we are given a light, I interpret that, our conscience, to know right from wrong. And if the world goes with a crooked gate, the cause lies with us. There are laws, but these are too often twisted and made afresh to satisfy our erring ways. The stark fact is that we may accept or reject the images and ideas that the forms arouse in us, or sublimate them. We are totally free, fearfully free, in our choice, and this freedom is the origin of ethics. Free will gives us freedom of choice and judgment, and these are like two polarities within the will. We need first to make the right choices, then we need the will to implement the choices we have made. Once we lose right judgment, our ability to see right becomes enslaved, and we are unable to discriminate. We no longer know how to behave. When the will is enslaved, then we are dragged down and become leaden. We know at first what we should do, but opt for the lesser challenge, the apparently easier way, the path leading to the dark wood. We become entangled with briars, and the way is soon covered over with, le with weeds, and only the grace of divine love may shake us out of our sleep. And that usually involves suffering, doesn't it? Suffering often is used to wake us. And so Virgil is left with a dichotomy between power and will. The good of the intellect can go no farther. further. It will be for Beatrice to show how these polarities may be reconciled. She will show how through the incarnation fallen nature is redeemed and given the grace to become a partaker of the divine nature. The next heading is Acidie or Sloth. Cantos 18, line 76 to 19, line 69. If we turn to the Philokalia, you, do you all know what the Philokalia is? It's a collection of all, not a collection of early uh, writings of the Church Fathers on um, the unseen warfare, uh, for want of a word, of the inner life. It's what the Russian pilgrim had in his knapsack as he walked over around Russia. Besides dried bread, he had a Bible and the Philokalia. It is now nearly completely uh, translated into English. It's just one um, volume to come out. And most of my quotations from the early fathers comes from the Philokalia. So if we turn to the Philokalia for help in order to understand this vice, it is soon realised how complex it is. For example, St John Cassian about 360 to 435, writing on the vices, 
makes for devastating reading. Achidye, he says, is a harsh, terrible demon, one who incessantly attacks us and conspires with the demon of dejection, telling us that we are failures in some way or another. Such foes wish to devour the whole soul, and the demons may take on all shapes and forms, attacking us on all levels. I'm sure you can see the relationship um, of the earlier section that we were talking about of forms to the demonic energies that can be take over uh, the forms that come into our minds. It is not always that we are lazy or have idle minds. It is more a poisoning, says St. John Cassian, of the will. We become indifferent, in, inattentive, unable to be joyful, introspective and morbid, indulge in useless chat, become busybody bodies. Laziness produces inquisitiveness, and from inquisitiveness comes unruliness, and from unruliness is born every kind of evil. One condition is to become tolerant of any point of view, the anything-goes state of mind, the sort of attitude that governs the media of the day. Even, I'm afraid to say, often clouding, clouding and the judgment of the church. We've become disillusioned in ideals, from love to the possibility of goodness. One reaction may be to isolate ourselves, to become caught up in our own limited world of conceits. Sloth is, or achidye, is a dreadful demon of the mind. St. John Cassian is blunt. The only way to ward off this demon is through prayer, and with this Dante is in full agreement, for his souls on the cornice of sloth simply labour to pray, in other words, unceasing prayer. St. John adds that there are two virtues which help to defeat the demons, patience and manual labour. There is nothing better than to dig the garden, saw up logs, use the carless, to cycle, or to take what Donizetti termed life-giving walks. Emphasising the effort needed to overcome sloth, the whip and bridle come from the voices of the penitents themselves as they patiently struggle and labour with prayer. Mary did not get the blues after pregnancy. She made haste to the hills to share her joy with Elizabeth. Caesar did not delay in his military exploits but pushed on, taking others by surprise. The bridal for sloth comes as tales overheard. He hears how, after the crossing of the Red Sea, the Israelites murmured and were unwilling to make the effort to progress towards the Promised Land, and how Aeneas left behind those companions which lacked zeal whilst he pressed on to Latium. 
Both of these examples seem to suggest that we must choose our companions very carefully and gain insight as to how those who we thought to be companions were in fact only immunizing our will from the spirit. They were leaden, holding back our progress in pilgrimage. The beatitude we should remember at all times is blessed are they that mourn, blessed are they that are penitent, for they shall be comforted. Dante's second dream, Canto 19, 1-36 Whilst amongst the slowful, night fell once more, all activity on the mountain ceased, and Dante's thoughts slumbered into a dream. It's interesting that on, on the corners of, of slothfulness, he falls asleep, the moment to fall asleep occurs. What follows is, is very profound when you consider it in the context of slothfulness of the mind. The ancient wit, 1958, Quell'antica strega, that ancient witch Lilith, Adam's first wife, a magical imago begotten of Samael, the evil one, finds her way into the dreamer's subconscious. Surely the fact that Dante dreamed such a horrific fantasy on the corners of Sloth is not to be overlooked. Even our dreams and their world have to be kept in check as we progress towards the living God. Furthermore, avarice, gluttony and lust lay ahead of us, all sins in which the beguiling power of a dreamy imagination plays a crucial role. Seen and unseen persuaders easily tempt us from the path. Such is Lilith's domain in the subconscious. In his dream, Dante sees a pale woman stammering with eyes asquint, crooked feet and maimed hands. His eyes linger on her and so her figure becomes straight, her complexion rosy, her voice pleasant. He is captured as if listening to a siren who not even Ulysses could have resisted. Four lines from a poet of the Sicilian school, which is the origin really of Italian um, vernacular poetry, a poet which Dante greatly approved of, and likewise Petrarch and Lorenzo de' Medici. His name was Giacomo da Lentino. He writes, Amor è un desio che ven da core per abbandonanza di gran piacimento e gli occhi imprima genera l'amore e lo core li dà nutriamento. Love is a desire that comes from the heart 
through a great abundance of pleasure, and the eyes first generate love, then the heart gives nourishment. Lilith symbolizes the sins of the flesh, bad love, malo amor. She only gains strength and beauty from Dante's own intent gaze. He's projecting on her something from within himself. So it is with avarice, gluttony and lust. For to be caught by these vices, we must have projected on material objects, on the food, the drink of social life, or on sexuality, or some devouring egotistical fantasy. We love a wish fulfillment. That is, not the possessed object, the rare cigar or wine, or the person who is not truly a person standing in relationship to us, but something that we have projected our lust upon. Dante has turned our minds back to Virgil's discourse in the preceding canto. Forms arouse images in the mind. How very careful must we be, having constant vigilance. The rabbinical tradition goes on to relate how God had compassion on poor Adam, trapped by his incubus, and created Eve to be his true other. Unfortunately, many Christians over the ages confused Lilith with Eve, with devastating results. We must never exalt the objects of our pleasure to the point that they gather force and assume a false image in the mind, for the image will trap us. The result is we fall in love with a dream, a fantasy, an illusion, for we have taken the fatal step of idolatry and projected on the image our ideal self. Our selfhood thus has become our own God. Dante is so great a poet that he writes for the witch words for a perfect song. Again, Dante is emphasising the power of music, the power of music in the hands of evil intent may be devastatingly fatal. Lines 19 to 24. Io son cantava, io son dolce serena, che marinai in mezzo a mar di smago, tanto son di piacere a sentire piena. Io volsi Ulisse del suo cammin vago accanto mio, e qual mecco so sausa, rano sen parte, si tutto la pago. Whosoever abides with me rarely departs, so wholly do I satisfy him. The basic meaning of this world, this, these lines. George MacDonald, in his remarkable novel Lilith, traces how 
intercourse with the incubus or succubus, if you are a woman, saps strength and destroys life. How terrifying are such thoughts as men and women, even children, are caught progressively into the net of illusions which is aptly termed the internet. We must return to Dante's dream. The god of his intellect had been asleep and once again a lady comes to waken Virgil in the dream. He steps forward and pulls the veils from the incubus and Dante perceives a vile stench coming from her belly, that is her womb, for she is the mother of poisons, the Medusa in disguise. The lady, an intuition, cannot unmask by herself the witch. This the good of the intellect must do. The teaching here is that all the faculties with the intellect must be trained to work in harmony. So powerful was Dante's dream that he could not rid his mind of it. He had to assure, Virgil had to assure him that the dream had been given him in order to learn how to free himself from Lilith's power. That is, the training of the intellect through constant prayer. Evagrios of Pontus writes, undistracted prayer is the highest intellection of the intellect. Avarice and prodigality, Cantos 1970 to 22 verse 9. Avarice is an earthbound sin because through it we look no further than the rewards of this life. The love of wealth is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 Because with it comes the worldly power and influence that a financial fortune gives a person. Thus the penance of the avaricious is to be bound with fetters forcing them to look at the earth. The avaricious are an earthbound people and are wittingly or unwittingly servants of the prince of this world. How apt is this image with the destruction of the earth by the banks and industry, all based on avarice. According to the fathers, avarice is a passion deriving not from our nature but solely from an evil and perverted use of our free will. It is a sickness that takes over the mind due to the lack of faith. Our daily bread is no longer sufficient and soon all sorts of apparently justifiable and sensible reasons fix our attention on financial gain. Soon the good of our intellect is squandered on money rather than love, vainly believing that gold and diamonds can buy love. As St. John Cassian says, 
the avaricious no longer truly love God and prefer the image of man stamped on gold, silver, in our times, paper, even plastic. Avarice is the idolatrous sin par excellence. Signs of avarice are a lack of obedience, irritability, resentfulness, complaining and stubbornness. Prodigality, which is also punished on this cornice, is a vain display of oneself and a wastage of resources. Again the whip and bridle come to Dante through the voices of the penitents. Hugh of Capet, once King of France, remember that in purgatory all the titles, like your majesty or doctor or sir, don't exist. Everyone relates to one another in the, with their Christian names. It's the mystery of true courtesy. Once King of France cries out, praying to Our Lady, and remembering how there's not even room at the inn, and that Christ Emmanuel was born in a cave and laid in a manger. Others cry out to St. Nicholas, remembering his great acts of charity. Others cry out the name of Fabricius, Fabricus, a just Roman consul who refused bribes. In all these examples selected by Dante from the classical past, he is emphasizing the importance of history and the teaching of virtuous examples to hold up, not just to the young, but to ourselves. A wise education is the health of a people, but bribes and backhanders seem to be the order of the day. Beware of politicians and officers of local government, banks, industry, multinationals, and rich individuals seem to get whatever they want, even when humans, animals, nature and the environment suffer. Avarice flies in the face of reason and common sense, yet it is the sin around which the merry-go-round of life twirls, just as much today as in Dante's times. Hugh of Capet offers seven examples of avarice, from that of Achan in the Old Testament to that of Midas in classical myth. The prayer of the avaricious is Psalm 118 or 19, depending how you calculate the Psalter, the longest psalm. And a lot could be said on this psalm, but I have not time to make such a big digression, unfortunately. In particular, verse 25, My soul cleaveth to the dust, O quicken thou me according to thy word. And their blessing is to remember at all times, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This brings me to a new character, Statius. Cantos um, 21 and 22. Publius Papinius Statius, about 45 to 96, 
was the most eminent poet of the Silver Age of Latin literature. His chief work was the Thebaid, an epic poem, and also the Achilleid, an unfinished epic poem, and the Silve, a collection of poems. Dante makes an error common to medieval writers by stating that he was a native of Toulouse. He was, in fact, from Naples. There is no evidence that Statius converted to Christianity. Dante may have been drawing, may have been drawing on a tradition or drew on poetic fiction to suit his scheme. Seven souls, in particular, all poets showed Dante fraternal love as he climbed Mount Purgatory. Each one is related to his art. The choice of poets helps us to gain insight into Dante's own poetic progress. The spontaneous Casello with his song, which delayed the pilgrim, at the outset of, Mount, of purgatory, together with Sordello brooding on worldly matters outside St. Peter's Gate. Then on the sixth cornice, Giacomo D'Alentino, who I quoted from, and Forese Donati salute him. Whilst on the seventh cornice, we shall meet the troubadour poet Daniel Arnaud, and the master of the Dolce Stil Nuovo school of poets, Guido Guinizelli. Statius, also a poet, is different. He plays a particular role, for he is the first soul released from penitence to be encountered by the poets. As a soul who is saved, and therefore truly within the mystical body, Statius is a representative of his master, our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Statius' sudden appearance is likened in 21 line 7 to the third who walks beside us in the Gospel of St. Luke 24 and 13 following. The risen Christ walked with two of his disciples on the way to Emmaus, though they knew him not until he broke bread with them at an inn along the way. This resurrection appearance has always warned Christians that Jesus is to be known in our neighbour, especially those of the household of the faith. From now on and to the grand climax of the, his great poem, Dante subtly focuses on the profound significance of becoming a partaker of God. Throughout these two cantos, the exchange between the three poets is one of pure agape. O frati mei, Dio vi dea pace. 21, line 13. O oh, my brothers, may God give you peace. If Virgil in the allegory is the good of the intellect. Statius may well represent Dante's aspirations as a poet. Born a pagan and converted to Christianity, he links the old with the new, 
that is natural humanism and with redeemed humanity. As a Christian, he fulfills the wisdom of old with the new. For within, as we've already said, the divine economy, nothing is ever wasted. Dante, therefore, is stressing through statues that he aimed to hold in his work the good of the past with the insights of Christianity. However, in no way does he imply here a static academic attitude to religion, but a living faith, the way of the pilgrim, whatever the age, the time, the place. Virgil's ancient wisdom has brought the pilgrim through hell, with the help of an angel who opened the gates of hell, to purgatory. He has also he has done so because Mary, the mother of the Lord, willed it to be so. In his vocation as a poet, Virgil had been both a mother and a nurse to Dante, 21, 97 and 98. Both Statius and Dante have derived their strength from Virgil, 21, 124 to 26. Through Virgil. Through Virgil, both have learnt the poetic art and his example helped both poets to grasp hold of the Christian faith. 22, line and 73. Per te poeta fui, per te cristiano. Line and 73. Through you I was a poet, through you a Christian. And lines and 21, 31 to 3, on Dio fui tratto fuori dell'ampia gola, d'inferno per mostrarli e mostrarli oltre quanto il poter menar mio scola. Wherefore I, that is Virgil, was brought forth from hell's wide jaws to guide him, and I will guide him onward as far as my school can lead him. Now, Virgil, Statius and Dante are all poets of long epic works. Dante drew on the examples from the past to write what may be described as the greatest Christian epic poem. He did not imitate the past, but drew inspiration from it, and thus fulfilled his poetic vision through his faith and the inner tradition of the Church. This is summed up in lines 127 to 9 towards the end of Canto 22. Dante describes himself as following behind Virtuous and Statius, listening to their words, which shed much light on poetry to aid my mind. Some critics have seen Dante as a prophet of early Italian humanism. He is certainly the greatest exponent to what Pico della Mirandola termed poetic theology. But contrary to Marsilio Ficino and his school, Dante never set the ancients above the tradition and fathers of the church. 
Neither did he set out to create an imaginative philosophical system in competition with theology. Nor can we find evidence that Dante promoted the perennial philosophy, though he certainly believed in the wisdom of the ancients. No doubt he would have said that since all humankind is created in the image of God, there are common patterns of truth to be found in all the great religions. Furthermore, and far more important, with the arrival of Statius, and being at last relieved from the spectacle of earthbound avarice, a new sense of urgency enters the poem. As Dante's will is gradually freed from the fetters of the selfhood by the erasing of the peas on his forehead by the guardian angels of each terrace, so he longs to be re reunited with Beatrice, Grace, and ascend the ladder back to God, in whom the will at, at last has peace. And the figure of Christ becomes half hidden, and from now on gradually more apparent as the tale unravels. As if to emphasise this gradual change of key, Canto 21 opens with a reference to the episode of the woman at the well of Samaria and the nature of thirst contrasted with the water of life promised by our Lord to all those who um, believe in him. That's, of course, in St. John's Gospel, chapter 4, 1 to 26. Dante, the pilgrim, has become conscious of the fact that the whole of man's salvation is dependent on prayer. Statius teaches him a vital lesson, and this is that the soul is its own judge. Canto 21, lines 55 to 63. Purgatory is something we have imposed upon ourselves. The whole mystery of freedom is in the relationship of our will and conscience to the forgiveness of sins wrought by the passion and resurrection. Suddenly, like statues, we are released like a great earthquake, shaking ourselves into action, free to follow the true instincts of our will that wills our final end in God. The Lord wishes us to stand freely and wholly before him. He wants us mature and ready to learn the inner way. Though constantly penitent, we are free. He said to us, your own judgment will tell you when you are really ready. And when that occurs, we suddenly find ourselves in a haste, a thirst for new dimensions of truth to be found in the life of the mystical body. We lift up our eyes unto the hills from whence cometh our help. We no longer slumber and sleep, for our eyes are set on him who dwells in the heavens. I suggest in this context Psalms 120 to 134, the so-called Psalms of Degrees, the Psalms of Pilgrimage, 
that the Jews used to sing as they made their way to Jerusalem. Suddenly, the whole poem and the Psalms take on a new significance, thanks to Dante's teaching. Gluttony, uh, 22, 130 to 24, 154. In a, the wider sense, gluttony is concerned with overindulgence in all the bodily comforts. Today's craze for a high standard of living is a prime example which confronts us daily. It is the sin that blights the Western world, especially America. We must have, and yet throw away, built-in obsolescence, all comforts included. Such mentality lives off the back of, as we know, the third world and ruins the environment. All this results from gluttony. It is, of course, also the giving of undue attention to the palate, be it with food or drink, or more, more, more likely both. As well we were, as nicotine, cigars and cigarettes and so forth. For Dante, the stage director par excellence, the cornice relates back to his own youthful years of indulgence. After all, we have had some pretty hefty cantos so far to contend with. Gluttony may be said to commence with the company of friends. Initially, it would appear not so egotistical or cold-hearted as the sins purge lower down on the mount. We all have a good meal with fine wines shared with friends and hospitality in this sense is not to be blamed. It is a foretaste of the banquet shared by all in paradise. Dante is frowning far more on the beer belly culture that blights our city centres. Also the cult for high prices for wines and fortified drinks paid for by a select minority. Likewise the fad for ridiculously expensive restaurants and hotels. It is interesting to note the subtle way in which Dante suggests that gluttony, that grasping, possessive self-indulgence, disfigures the human face. The penance for gluttony is simply starvation. The penitents thirst as they make their circuit round the corners. For example, is contrasted to Christ that their thirst is contrasted to Christ's thirst on the cross, Sitio, and his cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forgotten me, forsaken me? The once time gluttony of their mouths must be turned to praise, hence their prayer. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Note also that Dante depicts the whip and bridle as voices speaking from trees, thus associating the vice of gluttony with the tree of knowledge 
of good and evil. There is without doubt a gluttony for knowledge, as particularly shown in our own times. It is a thirst that removes us more and more from our true business, our metanoia. It is all too easy to procrastinate by the constant acquisition of a knowledge that is like trying to fill a bottomless pit. Hence the beatitude, blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The penitence on this cornice, oh, and a little aside here, you ought to turn up your Dorothy Sayers where you have an, uh, a little drawing uh, of what Dante is talking about, how certain letters form um, a sort of indication of the human face. The penance on this cornice are regaining the image in which they were created, which they have obscured by self-indulgence. For on their starved, face, starved faces is written, All more day, man of God. This is explained in Canto 23, lines 31 to 33. It was a conceit of the time, and I quote now from a sermon of Dante's period. Now behold, Ye blessed children of God. The Almighty has created you soul and body, and as he has written it under your eyes and on your faces, that you are created in his likeness. He has written it upon your very faces with ornamented letters. With great diligence they are embellished and ornamented. This your learned men will understand, but unlearned men may not understand it. The two I's are two O's. The H is properly no letter. It only helps the others. So that Omo with an H means man. Likewise, the brows arched above and the nose down between them are an M. Beautifully rounded and ornamented. So the nostrils, beautifully formed like a Greek E, beautifully rounded and ornamented. So is the mouth, an eye, beautifully adorned and ornamented. Now behold, ye good Christian people, how skillfully he has adorned you with these six letters to show that you are his own and that he created you. Now read me an O and an M and another O, gather that spells Omo, then read me a D and an E and an I together that spells Day, Omo Day, man of God, man of God. This is the tradition Dante is using at, at this moment in time. Dante meets his old companion Forese, or nicknamed Bici Donati was possibly related to his wife, Gemma um, Donati. Uh, note that in Canto um, 24, line 13, Dante mentions Forese's sister, um, Picarda, who we shall meet later on in Paradise. Well, 
Forese and Dante once exchanged rude and obscene sonnets, the precise meaning of which now eludes us. For sure Dante's father was accused, for some reason or another, of cowardliness. Forese of gluttony and neglecting Nella, his wife. Forese the penitent is now humbled by his wife's devotion, for her prayers have enabled him to speed up his delay on the lower cornices. This is yet another example that Dante gives on the need for intercession and prayer and the relationship between the living and the dead. Within the mystical body, we are all dependent on each other. Canto 24, line 56 following, Dante meets three poets from the Sicilian school. Bongiunto da Luca, Giacomo d'Alentino, who we mentioned before, and Guitone d'Arezzo. All these arty fellows like their wine and food. Customs haven't changed across the centuries. The poets acknowledged that their own poetic insights were taken up and developed into a higher poetic expression by Dante and all the poets of the Dolce Nuovo. And Dante's great canzone, Donne che avete intelletto d'amore, is quoted, indicating how the school took the concept of womanhood to a higher understanding of love, that is, purified of its sensual elements, a power of divine origin which is inseparable from the soul's true nobility. Just a little footnote that I couldn't help but note, it is amazing how Dante always recognises his own worth, judgments confirmed by history. At least he did accuse himself, as we saw, of the sin of pride. Finally, lust. Canto 25, 109 to canto, the end of Canto 27. The seventh cornice is prefaced by a discourse given to, by Statius. Rather than concentrating on the end of this discourse that is concerned with the airy, ghostly bodies of the shades on the other side of death, attention should be drawn especially to the first part, which indicates why lust is punished by fire. The hurt of personal relationships through the sin apart, Dancy is here stressing the sacredness of our sexuality. Statius teaches that the male seed is produced from the blood in perfect condition. Today we will speak of hormones, but hormones are useless if the blood be not healthy. Likewise, it is so in the production of the egg to be fertilized. In other words, our sexuality comes about within us by a sort of divine yet natural alchemy. He goes on to say that the embryo 
recapitulates the stages of evolution from plant to fish, from fish to animal, and then crowned by becoming human, a divine gift. It's interesting that Rudolf Steiner pointed that out much later, the beginning of our century. Dante tells us this in the Divine Comedy. Today we speak of evolution, but Dante would have spoken of the days of the creation according to the first chapters of Genesis. As the embryo develops, so its soul passes through the nutritive or vegetative state, then the sensitive or animal state, to be eventually crowned with the rational human soul directly and individually created and given to the embryo by God. Efasi d'un anima alma sola che vive e sente in se, in se rigira. A single soul which lives and feels and circles on itself. Uh, 25, 74-75. That is a single complete body-soul complex, a psychosomatic wholeness. Thus it could be argued that a fully integrated and sanctified soul might well be able to communicate lovingly towards the animal and vegetative worlds. This is why we love our gardens, the woods and the hills and all the wildlife that populates them. Populates them. We are only whole in the sight of the Lord God when we have such an empathy the miracle of the creation. Fire is an image of lust, but fire purifying the lustful is an alchemical image for transmuting dross into higher perfection. Love excessive or misdirected is now purged and set in order. Fire is also an emblem of God's word. See Jeremiah 23 verse 29. And God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12:29. Fire is the instrument of judgment. Revelation 8:8. 8, 8. We are baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Matthew 3:11. The oil with which we are anointed at services is an outward sign of the fire from above. This fire is judgment. It either consumes us or refines us, for he is like a refiner's fire. And the words of the Lord are pure words, even as silver, which from the earth is tried and purified seven times in the fire. The fire of true love burns away the dross of lust for love. Love is the root of every virtue. Fire is also, in its contrary, the sick root of the vice, the demonic, the hellish. Dante is no doubt suggesting that um, what is potentially good and, and, 
blessing, that is the divine fire, when we, we um, misuse our lives, it, it judges, and this great gift um, consumes us. By their own will, the penitents of the last corners purify themselves in the refining fire. Those of our natural lust circle the mountain west to east against the sun. The others run round in the opposite direction. And when they meet, they quickly embrace. The embrace, once wrongly used, is now the image and the means of remedy. Paolo and Francesca lingered, dallied with their temptation, and gave themselves over to their indulgence. As Dorothy Sayers acutely observes, between these two kisses, damnation and salvation swing balanced. Dante sees and salutes the master of his school of poets, the Dolce Stilnuovo, Guido Guinicelli, and the troubadour poet, Daniel Arnaud. Their prayer is the ancient hymn for Saturday matins, Sume Deus Clementiae. Their blessing, blessed is are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The garden of earthly innocence is guarded and surrounded by a wall of flames. The only way ahead is through the flames, and Dante is terrified. This wall of fire is the flaming sword of the cherubim, who are set to guard, who is set to guard Eden. It represents the penance all must make, the purification of our sinful selves through love. The fire head is none other than divine love itself. Dorothy Sayers also suggests the wall of fire may furthermore represent the paths of peril through which the lover must leap in order to attain his beloved. As Dante approaches, night falls and according to the rule of the mountain, he has to take his rest. His waking dream is of Rachel and Leah, who in the mystical tradition represent the contemplative and active life. His dream emphasises that the Christian life is a blend and balance of these two. Our activity should lead us to contemplation, and right contemplation sets us free again to the active life. At dawn, the poets pass through the curtain of fire and Virgil makes his memorable last speech. That's 27, 115 to 138. The substance of which is as follows. <clears throat> Dante has completed his journey of return. The nostalgia for paradise has led him back to Eden. Like us all, during his love, he has sought the sweet fruit of so many branches. And at last, what lies before him will give him 
his hungerings peace. Due to St. Mary's love and care for her son's family of souls, St. Lucy's watchful care and Beatrice asking Virgil to be his guide, he has been able to set out on the path of salvation. He has known the temporal flames of the purifying refiner's fire and the eternal fires of hell. He has looked at life fully. He has seen through the exercise of the good of his intellect that the fire of love either purifies or condemns and we must turn from the misuse of love which is the mystery of the divine nature. Failure to do so simply means that we perish. Virtue has guided him with the understanding and art available to all of good intent through the great mercy of God. Now he is to take his own pleasure for his guide. Lo tuo piacere ormai prendi peduce. Through penitence he has aimed his will to return and to be at one with the divine will and know the peace which passes all understanding. He is at last free from the introspection characteristic of the deep, steep and narrow way. Now it is enough for him to look at the beauty of the creation displayed all around him to realise this. He, like a child, can see the kingdom before him and all about him and within him. Before him awaits his reunion with Beatrice. Non espeter mio dir più mio cenno, libero, dritto e sano e tuo arbitrio, e fallo for a non far a suo senno, per ch'io te sovra, te corono e mi tiro. Lines um, in Canto 27, 139 to 142, and it's Virgil who's speaking. No longer expect a word or sign from him. Free, upright, and whole is your will. And it would be wrong not to act according to its pleasure. Wherefore I crown and mitre you over yourself. <laughs> 